Kids are being dismissed to their class as they do so. Take a minute and uh, just pray either with yourself. Maybe I would love to see people praying with a neighbor next to them or something. And let's just ask God to uh, direct our minds and our thinking as we go through some difficult concepts this morning. I sure would appreciate your prayers as uh, I want to communicate biblical truth in a very clear way. But I want Christ to be honored. I want Christ to be exalted in our midst today. And so take a minute, pray with the person next to you. If there's no next to you, pray by yourself and just ask God to uh, do work in and among us. And then I'll pray uh, and then we'll begin. So go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I want to say that we are recognizing in, our, in, in this moment, by the very fact that we're praying to you, we are recognizing our inferiority to you in our submission to you. We recognize the fact that we have to bring requests to you, that you are more powerful than us and more wise. And so we gladly, gladly acknowledge that. And so we are going to rest in your wisdom. We are going to rest in, in your goodness and your love and your mercy right now. And Father, I pray that as we wrestle with uh, some difficult concepts and then also uh, with a text of Scripture uh, that the Apostle Paul wrote many, many years ago, Lord, we pray that you would receive all the glory and honor. Father, I pray that as a result of spending time together today that we would be encouraged and that we would have a greater sense that you are God and that we need you. And so I ask that as I speak, that I would speak clearly and that I would say only the things that you'd have me to say. I pray that um, it would be rooted in your word and that uh, your word would carry the authority in this hour. Um, so thank you that we can meet together. Thank you that we can pray to you. We can bring these requests to you. And we're praying that you would receive, as I've already said, glory and honor. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Let me ask you to take your Bible and go to the 
the second letter to the Corinthians that Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians in the fourth chapter. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you in the seats there, it's page 965 is where you will find 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I've said already what the problem is, and here's, here's what we're, we're looking at in terms of our question for today, is that if God is so loving and good, why is there so much pain and suffering in this world? And that's the question that I want to uh, uh, attempt to uh, answer this morning, but we could even go one step further and say that if God knew that there would be so much suffering in this world, why would he even create the world? Now, I want to give you this morning, and we've got a decent amount uh, to, to cover, and so I'm going to move fairly quickly, and anyone that wants my notes are more than happy to have those afterwards, but, um, so if you miss something, then I'll be happy to give it to you later on, but I want to start with just a few logical responses to these questions that have been raised, but then quickly move into uh, a biblical response from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But before I do that, I, I, I just want to make sure that I, as, I don't want to be like C.S. Lewis when he was saying this, his introduction to his book called The Problem of Pain. Uh, you know, he says he doesn't want to be, uh, to scoff at scars as one who has no wounds. Okay, I recognize that when I'm talking about pain and suffering this morning that many of you have gone through far worse things than I have gone through in my life. And I recognize that I am someone that probably has had, uh, even in all the trials and tribulations that I have experienced in my life, has been nothing compared to what a lot of other people have gone through. And so I want to make sure that I put that out there. And so it was kind of like when C.S. Lewis wrote that book on the problem of pain uh, back, I think it was in the 40s, when he wrote that, he, was, he actually asked the publisher when he was asked to write it if he could write it anonymously. And it was for this very reason, because he felt that he could only talk to the issue from a theological standpoint, from an, uh, a theoretical standpoint, not from an experiential standpoint. And so as I stand here before you today, I kind of feel the same way that C.S. Lewis felt in his introduction to his book on the problem of pain, of saying that, look, I understand that the things that I say here today, there's theory in a lot of ways, but we're going to move to the biblical text, and that's the reason why we go to the Bible, because it's not dependent, truth isn't dependent upon experience. And so anything I say about pain and suffering, understand that as, as I've been preparing for this message, I've, I've, I've been thinking through some of the things that you, that I know that you are going through, and I'm praying for you. And so my hope is not to be glib about this. My hope is not to, or my intent is not to um, uh, treat suffering as, as it's no big deal. There are real pain, there are real tears, there are real scars that are associated with the pain of this world, and I recognize that. But as we have to see what does God say about these things. And so that question that has been raised, it has been raised uh, first by David Hume many years ago called The Problem of Evil, when it talks about this idea, if God is all-powerful, if God is all-loving or good, then why does evil exist? Because as he put the problem, if God is good then and all-good, then he would not allow bad to happen. Or if God were all-powerful, then he surely would stop it. And so the fact that evil is in existence shows that God is not good and that he is not all-powerful, therefore the problem of evil. 
Now, in uh, academic circles for many years, this argument held pretty str- had a pretty strong hold on apologetics and people wrestling with this. But in later years, uh, this has actually gone away from being a very strong argument against the existence of God. And the reason why is because uh, as C.S. Lewis, who started out as an atheist for this very reason, as he began to ponder the issue, he began to realize that, wait a minute here, that um, he was being, uh, he, was, he was upset about morality, he was upset about evil because it went against his system, but yet he said, well, who am I to have a system of morality? The only way that you can really struggle with evil, the only way you can really be repulsed by pain and suffering is if there is a higher moral code that is put out there by a higher God. But we still need to wrestle with this a little bit. And so I would just submit a few logical responses quickly before I go into the text here. And that is this, the first logical response is that if one does abandon their faith in God or refuses to believe in God over the problem of evil, then the problem of senseless suffering does not go away. And so it's the fact that the reason why your faith is being challenged or someone's faith is being challenged is because there's seemingly senseless suffering in this world. And so you say, therefore, I'm not going to believe in God. I'm not going to follow him anymore. He is not worthy of my fellowship. Well, that's fine to a degree, but the problem of senseless suffering is still there and you still have to wrestle with it in some way. So abandoning faith for, because of pain and suffering makes you no step further. A second logical, or before I go on with it, I'll just say this, that as I already said, C.S. Lewis was an atheist because of the problem of evil, and, but then the, the problem of evil actually forged his belief in God. I'll say this, the second logical response is this, that if God is wise enough for you to be angry with him for allowing suffering and pain, then he must be wise enough to have reasons that we don't yet know for pain and suffering. If you can be upset with God because he should know better then probably he does know better, is the way you could put it. And so if we have a moral outrage against God because there is so much pain and so much suffering in this world, then we're actually saying then that you could do better than this, but you're refusing, to, you're refusing to do better than this. And so therefore, um, he might be, if he's that much more powerful than you, he's most likely much wiser than you. If God is infinitely knowledgeable, or at least he knows more than you do, why couldn't he have morally sufficient reasons for allowing evil that we cannot think of? And I would say this, um, that this is where arrogance and pride form, is that we say that I know better than God. But I'll say one other logical response to this before moving to biblical text is that if God is wiser than me, then I'm in no position to advise him. And so if I recognize that God is even smarter than me or wiser than me or more knowledgeable than me, then that puts me in a place where I cannot advise him. And so what I want you to do is I want you to think for a second. Think of a time where you saw God's wisdom in your life. I want you to think of a time where you saw God do something in your life and you said, wow, I would never have thought of it this way. Or I, this can only be by the hand of God where he showed his great wisdom to you. Because I guarantee it, if you take a few minutes to think about this, you will come up, you will come up with some experiences that you yourself has experienced. And even if you didn't come up with that, you could easily go then to the experiences of other people around you and even into the biblical text of, why, of how God showed his great wisdom. I mean, for me and my family, how God brought children into our home. 
is an incredible story of God's wisdom. Uh, we read Psalm 113 this morning to start the service, uh, and uh, Jane actually picked the text, and uh, I, I said, yo, that's great and everything. He didn't really pay much attention. I read through it and things, and this was earlier in the week, put in place. She wrote me a note a couple days ago and said, would you be willing to start the service by reading that text? I said, absolutely. And so as I'm going through the text to read it, after having studied through for the sermon, it just kind of clicked in my mind. The very end of that psalm, it says that he will make the barren woman, he will give the barren woman a home and make her the mother of children, plural. That was, a, that was an incredible answer to prayer for us when God gave Michaela to our family uh, seven years ago. I could go through all the details and things like that, but every time I have told that story to people, the response typically is, I've got goosebumps. The way God miraculously worked in the heart of a teenage woman who was pregnant and not understanding why this could happen to her. And I get up and preach a sermon on pain and suffering, and I happen to use their illustration of the fact that we had gone through multiple adoption attempts and had failed, and I was struggling. And she went home and told her parents, she said, God allowed me to get pregnant for that pastor and his family to have a child. And Michaela was born. And this teenage mom never wavered from that. In fact, this teenage mom found Christ in the middle of that. I can tell you that I can stand, I can think of God's wisdom in that story, and I can, it gives me goosebumps to think about it even seven, eight years later. And so if you can think of a story where God is wise, and he is wiser than you, then the problem, then it probably means that we are in no, in fact it does mean we are in no position to advise him. In fact, so not only do I want you to think about a time where God has showed his wisdom to you, I also want you to think of a time where someone tried to advise God. And how did that work out for him? His name was Job. (laughs) If you remember the story of Job, remember he goes through all this pain and suffering, all these things that are going through, things are taken away. And it all started, it all started because God started bragging on him. God was bragging on him. He said, have you considered my servant Job and how he is great among people? And Satan said to him, the angelic host said to him, the fallen angelic host said to him, he said, it is only because you are blessing him. If you were to take away his blessings, he would curse you. And so God, in his infinite wisdom, said, fine, go ahead and take away his blessings, but you just cannot kill him. And so Job, as many of you know the story, went through tremendous suffering. And at first he was doing okay with it, but then over time, if we read towards the end of it, the end of his words there, a few chapters before the end of the book, we see there where he says that he says, I am calling God to an account. It's a pretty rough word. Then God shows up and answers, and he says, where were you? Where were you when the, the world was formed? And he goes into and spends several chapters just asking Job questions. And at the end of that, Job says, all right, that's enough. You're right. You're bigger than me. You're wiser than me. You know more than me. I'm sorry. He says, I'd heard of my God before, but now my eyes see him. And so if God truly is wiser than you and smarter than you and more knowledgeable than you, then you and me, we are in no position to advise him. So these are some logical responses. That's good, that's helpful, okay, that can help us, but does the Bible then just ask us to then just go on blind faith then and then just not have any type of of hope in the midst of our pain and suffering? Does the Bible just say, march on? Uh, Does the Bible just say, you know, buck up, Skippy? Is that what we see when we look to Second Opinions 3? It says, hey, you know, you just got to deal with it. Is, Is that what it is? 
Or does the Bible actually give us hope? I'd say it really boils down to this, and you know that this type of message cannot be preached without referencing Romans chapter 11. I put it on the screen for you. It says this, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? See, the reality is that in some ways there are no answers to this. And I raised a second question in the, in the introduction of, if God knew that this were to happen, why would he even go and create it? Isn't, wouldn't there been, have been a better way to go about this whole world thing? C.S. Lewis, again, references that question in the introduction, and he says, I'm not going there. <laughs> That's what he says. He says, I, I, I'm not going to answer that question. He goes, I don't know of anyone who can answer that question. And in some ways, the question is really moot in some ways because uh, we are here. And so it doesn't really matter if God could have done something different. We are here, and so we have to deal with that. And so where do we find hope? Where do we find encouragement? Where do we find direction as you experience pain and suffering in this world, and how will that affect your faith in God? That's the reason why I've asked you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We could have gone to a lot of texts of Scripture, but I chose this one um, because I felt that this gave us some really good hope. In 2 Corinthians, we understand that he is writing, that Paul is writing to a church who is going through difficult times. We know that they are going through sufferings because in chapter 1, he talks about how the God is the God of all comfort and that he will comfort them in all their tribulations. And so, as was very common in the early church, there was lots of persecutions. There was lots of their faith, excuse me, their faith being tested. And we see that there was this group of people that just needed encouragement, and they had a lot of problems in their church, and Paul was helping them with it. And he says this in chapter 4, in verse 7, it says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now, what treasures he's talking about there? That goes back to verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So this, this treasure that Paul references in verse 7 is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The gospel, Okay. And so he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, we but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what was written, I believe and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. 
For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And that is the words of the living God that we have just read. And so what I want us to do today as we walk through this text just for a few minutes, I want us to understand that we can have confidence in the midst of our pain and suffering, and our faith does not have to be shaken. I told you before that Paul describes the Christian as having a treasure that was the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the gospel. And, but that treasure, he says, is in jars of clay, and it's apparently not easy. Did you notice the words he used? Afflicted and perplexed, persecuted, struck down. It sounds to me like the life of suffering and pain. But what can we learn from this text? How can we find hope from this text? Well, I'm reminded of, there's, a, there's an old Farsight uh, comic. Now, I don't know if you can read that or not, but it says this, take a good long look at this. We don't know what it is, but it's the only part of the buffalo we don't use. Okay? All right? Talking about, you know, this country's first settlers, Native Americans, and their resourcefulness, and the fact that they did not waste anything. And as I think about that, as I was thinking about this message today, I was thinking in the same way as that God does not waste anything, including pain and suffering. And so there's a, we can be confident of that. And so, first of all, we can be confident that our suffering is not intended to harm us. We can be confident that our suffering is not intended to harm us. Did you notice that in verse 7 it says to show, this is the reason why, that we have this treasure in jars of clay in this very difficult, this weak disposition that we are holding the gospel in. And the reason why we have this, it says to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And so one of the reasons that we can take from Scripture is that we have pain and suffering is to keep our eyes focused on Christ. And you say, well, isn't that kind of arrogant? Or why would we need that? And the reason why is because it is for our ultimate best that we do that. C.S. Lewis, again, I quote him. He said this, everyone has noticed how hard it is to turn our thoughts to God when everything is going well with us. We have all we want is a terrible saying when all does not include God. We find God an interruption. He says, we've all found the experience that when things are going super well with us and when there's no problems, that our attention and our mind is very often not on God in those moments. But God uses pain and suffering to draw our attention back to him. Uh, C.S. Lewis had a friend who said this, his unnamed friend. He said, we regard God as an airman regards his parachute. It's there for emergencies, but he hopes he'll never have to use it. (laughs) He also said, what then can God do in our interest but to make our own life less agreeable to us and take away the plausible source of false happiness? It's just there when God's providence seems at first to be most cruel, but it deserves most praise. See, pain and suffering often take away the things that promise false happiness to us. 
And so whatever the reason why God has pain and suffering in your life, it's not to harm you. It is to remind you of what is most important. It is because he loves you. It's because he wants what's best for you. The Apostle James supports this notion. He said that suffering, in the first chapter of his letter, he says that suffering is a crucial element to being truly satisfied in this life. We can't get away from that. And we can't, in any type of life, we can't expect to have true satisfaction or true joy without difficulty along the path and along the way. And again, I speak as someone who I am not scoffing at scars who have no wounds here. I understand that some of the suffering that God has asked you to walk through or people that you know in the walk through is terrible. But understand that that doesn't have to shake your faith in God. Actually, you can see that it must be because He is loving you. Furthermore, well, I would say this in Romans chapter 5, that suffering is listed as a crucial element to endurance and hope. David said that it was good that he was afflicted in Psalm 119, verses 67 and 71, because obedience was the result and fellowship with God. So whatever the reason, we understand, we can be confident that pain and suffering in your life is not intended to harm you. And furthermore, I would say this before I move on to the second point, is that if God intended to use suffering to harm you, he would not have woven suffering into his own plan of suffering himself. You see, he brought in suffering into his own life because he cared that much for us. And he cared about our pain and suffering. And so when Jesus went to the cross, and he went to the cross of Calvary, and he, and, he, and he died an unjust death and bore all of our sins, and the most difficult part of that moment wasn't the nails through his wrist and through his feet and the spear in his side or the crown of thorns upon his head. The most difficult moment, the most difficult part of that was the rejection of God. He experienced rejection of God. Remember when he put his arms out on the cross and he was nailed there. And then towards the end of that, he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, here's the thing you need to understand about suffering and pain. Is that Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy you. The pain and suffering you're going through in this life cannot destroy you. That's why Jesus says, do not fear the one who can destroy the body. Fear the one that can destroy the soul. And so Jesus on the cross took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy you, being cast away from God. He took that away so now all the suffering that you experience can actually be for your good and not destroy you. You see, this pain and suffering we have is not intended to harm us. But we can also say, we can also be confident as we look at this text here, we see it belongs to, so the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This is the reason why he wants us to, to understand that our weakness that we feel in this life through the difficulty of life is actually for our good, but it's also not just for our good, but we can be confident that our suffering is intended to help other people. Did you see it in verse 12 when we're reading there? It says this. It says, so that death is at work in us, but life in you. He says that the things that they're going through, the difficulty that they were experiencing was actually to help the other people around them. And did you also notice in verse 15 of this text when it says, for it is all for your sake, so that his grace extends 
to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving. And so we see that as pain and suffering is experienced, one of the things that we can be confident in is, is that it is actually intended to help other people. I think of Philippians chapter 1, when Paul was in prison, he wrote this. He says, I want you to know that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest of my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, did you notice? I don't know if you ever noticed this before. In Philippians 1, he says, that most of the brothers having become more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. And so the fact that Paul was going through pain and suffering and trial was actually helping other brothers in Christ. And you don't know how God's using that in other people's lives. But understand, we can be confident that if God has asked you to walk through pain and suffering, it is not because he is not good. It is not because he is not powerful. It is because he is working for the benefit of other people around you, as well as your own soul. Some of you will recognize the name Johnny Erickson Tata. As a, as a teenager, she was in a diving accident, paralyzed from the shoulders down. She struggled for the first couple years of this disability. Why would God allow this to happen? She was a teenager. She had her whole life ahead of her. Well, some of you know the incredible global impact that Johnny has had because of her suffering. Some of you know how that she has, God has used her to start a foundation and start a ministry for people with disabilities um, I have friends who have personally benefited from Johnny's ministry because of her disability, the, the pain and suffering she went through. And so what she's gone through has actually helped thousands, if not millions of people. But let me raise a question for you, though. That's fine that Johnny is able to be used in that way because God's given her a global platform. But what about the people who are suffering that do not have that global platform? What about the person who's going through the, parala- the, the, the paralysis just like Johnny is going through but does not have the speaking engagements and does not have the books and does not have the global network that Johnny has? Is pain and suffering lost on that person? Well, you know the answer to this. The answer, of course, is no, but how do we wrestle with that? Does it not seem sometimes that people go through pain and suffering and there's no sign of why this is good or why this is helpful to people around them? In fact, sometimes we think that there's a, there's a formula. It's like, okay, if I go through you know, X trial and three people are brought to Christ with it, then it's worth it. But what if no one's brought to Christ with it? Is God's goodness then attacked in that way? Well, you know, Johnny actually struggled with that very question. There was a friend of hers that she went in the hospital. Her name was Denise, I believe. And Denise was a committed Christian, suffering intensely. And then one day she died. And Johnny wrestled with the fact of no one was influenced by her. And so she confided in a friend, and she asked a friend about how that this would have been and, and, and some advice on it. And this friend very wisely brought Johnny to understand um, that there is a global audience that we are always influencing. Do you remember in uh, Christmas this last year, we talked about how that angels 
desire to look into this life. The Bible talks about in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired diligently. And then it talks about how the gospel came, but it says this, it says, these are things into which the angels long to look. And so we may not have a global platform where thousands or millions of humans understand and benefit from our pain and suffering, but for some reason, heaven is, in some ways, heaven is affected, and the angelic hosts are affected by what happens on this earth. How do I know that? Luke chapter 15, verse 10, we're told in the parables there, the lost things, that the angels are rejoicing in heaven when a sinner repents. And so that there is a definite correlation to what happens on this earth and to what happens in the heavens. And we see there that there is a time where the angels then begin to rejoice because they see God at work in the lives of humans. And so if you're in pain and suffering and you don't have a book deal, you don't have the opportunity to stand in front of people and speak, and you feel very alone in your pain and suffering, understand that you are not alone, that there are millions of beings who are watching and seeing God's grace at work in your life. Furthermore, we see in Ephesians chapter 3, it says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. One of the purposes of the church that you and I are a part of is so that we could instruct the angelic host of the glory and the wisdom of God because you remember, they do not have a redemptive plan. The angels who fell have no hope of eternal security and hope of forgiveness. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. And so because that we can have redemption, and so as the angels watch and see us walk through pain and suffering, and they see that how we can respond in faith in God, and we can see how God is at orchestrating events, they bring God glory in the midst of your pain and suffering. So understand that it's not lost. There's always an attention. There's always an audience for you to show God's mercy and God's glory even in the midst of pain and suffering. So we can be confident that our suffering is intended for others' good. And remember about the angelic host, remember the whole story of Job, that was all in the angelic arena that that was happening. So whatever you're walking through in the midst, if you're feeling alone, you're feeling it's for no good at all, understand that you are surrounded. You are surrounded by angelic hosts that we cannot see right now, that one day we will, and they, they are being influenced, and they, they are being brought to worship God because of what you're going through on this earth. So God is wise, much wiser than you and me. Thirdly, I would say this, that we can be confident that our suffering is intended for God's glory. Verse 15 says, it says, uh, for all for your sake, so as grace extends more and more to people, uh, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God, it says in verse 15. Now, that can come across as narcissistic. Again, I, I want to quote C.S. Lewis again. He struggled with the notion of God needing glory. He said this, quote, We all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. He says this in his book, Reflections and Psalms. And so we understand if we say that, okay, one of the reasons why we suffer so God gets glory. And we think, well, man, that seems pretty self-absorbed, God. Now, none of us would say that, if you're, if you, particularly if you grew up in church. You know, that's on the naughty list. You don't say things like that, okay? But you've all thought it, okay? I've thought it. Is God that weak that he needs that, that much attention? Is God that insecure 
that he needs to put me through life's difficulty. So then I say, God, you're good. And he's like, oh, okay, good, good, you got it. What kind of God is that? Well, I tell you, it's not the God of the Bible. But we tend to think of the God of the Bible that way. Lewis pondered praise and admiration. He realized that there are many facets to praise, glory, and admiration, and I really benefited from his, his reflections on this. He used the illustrations with a painting. I'm going to change the illustration to that of the Grand Canyon because I just think it's a much larger scale. But if we were to say that the Grand Canyon demands admiration, it is not because the canyon is insecure and becomes more insecure if we do not praise it. We say it demands admiration because admiration because it is the only, to quote C.S. Lewis, adequate or appropriate response to it. If someone walks up to the Grand Canyon and looks at it and says, meh, it's a hole in the ground. How would we look at that person? We look at that person and say, what is wrong with you? This is, this is, this is beautiful. And let me parenthetically state that the Grand Canyon was created by great catastrophe. I'll just put that out there. And now we have beauty out of it. But if we walk up to the Grand Canyon, we say, meh. We would think, what is wrong with you? Can't you see that this demands admiration? Not in the sense of like, oh, now the Grand Canyon is not going to be as great because you didn't say it. It's, it's almost what's wrong with you. And if we don't give the praise, to, again, I'm quoting, I'm quoting Lewis here, okay? He says, we shall be stupid, insensible, and great losers. We shall have missed something. Pretty harsh. But the point is, is that we have missed it. And that's the reason why we glorify God. is because it is that awe-inspiring. It's not because he needs our praise. It's because we see it. We see him for who he is. And we are moved to glorify him. So God commands us to glorify him because it's only by doing this that we will ever find the rest, satisfaction, and joy in him that we were made for. So he says, these pain and sufferings, it's for the glory of God. Psalm 147 verse 1 says, praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. It is fitting to praise God, even in pain and sorrows, because he is that good. And so whatever pain and sorrows or suffering that God has for you, it is for his glory. We can be confident of that. Finally, this morning, we can also be confident that our suffering will be rewarded. Did you notice in verse 17, it says, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. If I said, I showed, I said earlier that God doesn't waste anything, I would say this, that God is a debtor to no one. There is no thing that God will ask you to endure that you will endure that then God becomes your debtor. And to make sure that you don't even get the hint of that, God says he will reward us. Imagine that. You. Me. The sinners that we are. Not only will God carry us through this life and God keep us from destruction, utter destruction, but the Bible says he will reward us. And it seems to be that there's a correlation between the pain and suffering of this life and the reward in heaven. It says that any suffering we have, in verse 17, is slight 
and momentary. Now, I want you to go back to the words that he said before. We're afflicted in every way. We're perplexed. I mean, we don't understand this. We are persecuted. We are struck down. These are the words that he used. And then he says, this is slight and momentary affliction. Back in chapter 1, he talks about their, their affliction. It says that they despaired of life itself. That's slight and momentary, according to the Apostle Paul, in comparison to the reward that God has for us. That should give me confidence and hope as I think about my life and think about how I'm supposed to respond to the difficulties of this life. I said just a second ago that um, God is not a debtor to anyone. I want to, I want to read uh, in the last minute or two that we have together in this in, for our sermon is from Matthew chapter 19 and verse 27. So if you're taking notes, just write this reference down because it's, it's, it's an interesting text for you to look at later on. Then Peter said to Jesus, he says, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Peter then asked this question, what then will we have? He says, we've left everything. We followed you. So what are you going to do for us? That's what Peter says. Jesus said, then truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children's or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Basically, Jesus says, don't worry about it. You cannot sacrifice for me in such a way that it will not be, quote-unquote, made up to you. Hundredfold. Don't worry about it. Peter says, I'm giving up everything for you. What are you going to do for me? Jesus says, don't you worry about that. I'm a debtor to no one. I will reward you. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10 says, For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. The writer of Hebrews says, God is not unjust, and he will deal with every trial that you've gone through, and he will make sure that you at the end of time and all eternity will say it was worth it. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted, for they will inherit the earth. And so you and I will be rewarded. And God says, if you have had a difficult life, and some of you have gone through so much more pain and suffering than I have, I would just give you this hope that you can have confidence that in the eternity, you will look at whatever trial you're in in this moment, and you will say, that was slight, and that was momentary, and it was transient, and it was worth it. Because God is all wise. So let me close. Our response to suffering and pain ultimately boils down to how we view God and this life. Really, how you view God and how you view this life will determine how you respond to pain and suffering. I told you the, the question earlier is, if God is good and wise, why is there so much pain and suffering? And the answer, of course, is that, well, because he is wiser beyond even our comprehension of seeing the sufferings. And let me tell you, I have let my mind go to some of the most senseless and awful sufferings that are experienced in this world. And let me tell you, my stomach turns 
And there are times where I say, God, why? I do not understand this. So I don't pretend to have this all nailed down perfectly, but what I'll say this is when I go back to the Bible, I see over and over again confidence that God is wiser than me. And if I can at least say that he's wiser than I am, then I'm in no place to advise him. And I need to believe him. So a response to suffering and pain ultimately boils down to how we view God and this life. You see, if you see God as merely your accomplice in life, you will feel betrayed by him. Every time pain and suffering comes, you will get the sense that your accomplice has let you down. But on the other hand, if you see him as an all-wise God who loves you, you will find freedom and rest. So you got to ask yourself, is God good and is God sovereign? You knew that that was coming. For those of you who have been here for the last five years, you know that I was going to talk about at some point in this message that God is good and sovereign. Because if you can believe those two things about God, you can get through anything in this life. That God is good and that he is sovereign. You can weather any storm that life may bring your way, but not just weather the storm, but you can actually benefit from those storms and for the good of others, and for the glory of God. But I also said how you view your response of pain and suffering is not just how you view God. He's not just your accomplice in his life to get you what you want. He's an all-wise, loving God. But it's also how we view this life. If you see this life as an end of your affections and energy and attention, you will be disappointed and even driven to despair at times. But if you see this life as temporary and transient, all in preparation for a life to come, you will grow to see pain and suffering as stepping stones to greater things instead of hindrances to your happiness and satisfaction. Now, I am not promoting anything even remotely close to like what uh, other theologies would say where pain is an aberration or is, is not real. Pain is real. And I understand that when I say that you will grow to see pain as stepping stones, that is not to minimize the pain that you're going to go through and that you potentially going through right now, but is to say that if that is by comparison a greater glory that awaits you because of this, then it will be for your good. Maybe a good exercise for you to do is try to come up with a comparison. Write the script of how you think what would be the best way for God to reward your pain and suffering. What would it be that God would give you or do for you to say it is all worth it that whatever you've gone through in this life. And once you've got that, then go back to the text that we're in and say that's not even worthy to be compared. Because God is so much better for you. So how you view God, how you view this life, will ultimately determine how we get through pain and suffering. Now, we have the privilege of having the Lord's Supper today. And here we have the table before us. And so um, what appropriate time to think about pain and suffering. Because it is here at this table that we're reminded of that pain and suffering that Jesus endured. So that so that we could have eternal life, and not just eternal life, so that we would have an eternal relationship with him, and so that there would be no more pain and no more sorrows in heaven. The Bible says that that is going away, and the only way that that's possible is because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. 
And so as we have the Lord's Supper today, and this is for, uh, it's, a, it's a small, simple uh, uh, meal, if you'll call it, that Jesus instituted right before he went to the cross. And he says, for those of you who are committed followers of me, I want you to do this. And so we carry that tradition to this day. If you're a committed follower of Christ, then this table's for you. If you're still in process on that, if you're still figuring things out, then this isn't for you. And so we ask you not to participate. And that's not, that is not to, you know, to uh, exclude you or to, to make fun or anything like that. It's just we're following what Jesus said, okay? But I would say that you can participate by asking Christ to save you from your sins. And then, you're, then, then this table's yours. And so we have the opportunity as believers to signify and to remember again what Christ did for us on that cross, thereby making any pain and suffering that we go through actually worth it. Because if there isn't the eternal glory to be revealed to us on the other end, then what we are going through in this life is terrible and worthless, and we have no hope. But as you come to the table today, Whatever difficulty you're going through, whatever trial you're going through, what I want you to think about is what Jesus experienced was far greater. And he did that so that we could be free and have freedom in him. So what we're going to do in a minute here, uh, musicians are going to come up and they're going to, they're going to uh, lead us in some singing. You guys will come up to the, the front of the, the, uh, the table here and grab a, a thing of juice and, and a piece of bread, which I'll be breaking and putting in the basket. Go back to your seat and just wait there, and then we'll eat and drink together. As we say every time that we have the Lord's Supper, we understand that there are people that have difficulties walking up and getting up to the table, that we 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 really understand that. We want to we serve you. And so we have someone, I'm not sure, is it Roger? Okay, Roger is going to be taking um, a, a tray of, of bread and, and a, a tray of juice, and he'll make his way back to the auditorium. It, just catch his eye, and he'd be happy to serve you. He's going to go back to the AV guys and, and, and give it to them anyway, so he'd be happy to serve you on the way back. So we're going to pray. And then musicians are going to come. Once we start singing, then you come up to the table. Father, I want to pray for us now. I want to pray that as we, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I want, to under, I want us to be, to be reminded that the pain and suffering that we're going through in this life is not worthy to be compared to the pain and suffering that you went through, what we're remembering and you went through that not to show us that pain and suffering is not included in our life because you want to harm us, but it's for our good. And so restore our faith, strengthen our faith. May we love you and follow you. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.